So have you all ever been to one of those places that just absolutely just take your breath away? Just one of those sacred places. Like for me, when I think of, of one place in my life where I just was stopped in my tracks, I was 20 years old, I believe. I got sent on a, a summer mission trip thing um, in Denver, Colorado, and we got to go and uh, basically take these inner city kids camping in the you know, the, up in the Rockies, pretty high up above the tree line. And so we're about 11,000 feet, and these are middle schoolers. So you can imagine taking middle schoolers camping anywhere, much less in the Rockies. It was, um, it was a lot of, it was extra, as the kids are saying these days, um, very extra. But I snuck away for a minute, and there was this one spot called Guanella Pass that we were hiking in, and we kind of got up and I said, I, I'm going to like climb this hill. And I could barely breathe because it was really high. But I climbed all the way to the top of this hill. And it wasn't a full-on like 14 or, or mountain or anything. But it was high enough where I was like alone for, you know, probably a half mile. And then I could see little people down there. And it was just me. And it was quiet. There was no roads. There was no anything. It was just me. And just that silence, that like holy silence of, of, of just, man, you are there. And you know you're there. You're just so present in those moments. I don't know if you have a place like that you visited or you've gone on a vacation or a concert or some sort of festival where you've gone and it feels like heaven and earth meet. It feels like there's just this thin veil between the, the realities of heaven and earth, and you feel something bigger than what normal life is actually like. The Celtic Christians many, many, many centuries ago called these places thin places because for some reason the Celtic Christians believed that heaven and earth were not way up there and down here, that heaven and earth were two realms that were only three feet apart. I'm not really sure how they got three feet, but the thin places were the places where that line was so thin that you could, you could almost tear back the veil and step right into heaven. We're all looking for that. Whether you're religious or not, whether you are a church-going person or not, you are in the process, you are in the constant search for that sacred place. You showed up here today, I would imagine, because you want an experience of something sacred, a place where heaven and earth meet. So that's, that's not a religious thing, that's a human thing. The, the people I know that aren't into religion and aren't into church are still running off to vacations and concerts and festivals looking for something transcendent in their life. There's a guy named Eric Weiner. He wrote a book called Man Seeks God. And, and he wrote this article in the New York Times a few years ago where he was talking about this pursuit because he traveled all over the world and trying to find these thin places. And this is what he came to the conclusion. He says, ultimately, an inherent contradiction trips up any spiritual walkabout. The divine supposedly transcends time and space, and yet we seek it in very specific places at very specific times. If God, however defined, is everywhere in every wind, as the Australian aboriginals put it so wonderfully, then why are some places thin and others not? Why isn't the whole world thin? That is a really wonderfully astute question that he is asking us today. Why can't the whole earth be a thin place? Why can't heaven and earth seem to fill everything with that level of transcendence? This is his last statement in this article. It just takes it to the next level. He says, maybe 
It is, but we are too thick to recognize it. Maybe thin places offer glimpses not of heaven, but of earth as it really is, unencumbered, unmasked. I love that, man. He's not a Christian that I know of, but he's writing this because as a human being, he recognizes that there's something about this earth. That should not be the exception that when you climb a mountain, you feel that connection between heaven and earth. Or when you go to that concert, or when you go to that special place where you experience something transcendent, that should not be the exception. That should be the norm. The earth was made. Our experiences as human beings were made to see heaven and earth meet. That ache towards transcendence is something that's human and it's something that's been present throughout time. You see, in Jesus' day, they actually had a place, the thin place, and it was the temple. The temple was the place where, where God dwelt. And so if you wanted to meet with God, if you wanted to please God, his presence was there. So you go there where his presence is, you make sacrifices, and that was the experience they had with the divine. And if you wanted to please God, you had to go into the temple to only a certain degree because you couldn't get into the Holy of Holies, which was the very center of the temple where the, the, the deepest presence of God was, where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, only one priest a year, the high priest, could enter one day on the Day of Atonement. That's when he was allowed to actually go into that one beautiful place of God's presence. But you and me, we would only really have access through particular people in this one particular place at one particular time. So you can imagine what kind of strange upheaval that Jesus brought into this world. When Jesus brings an experience where God is not stuck inside a building or a temple, you can see how the religious people of the day began to get nervous. He comes on the scene in Mark 1.15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. So repent and believe the good news. Repent is simply a word that means rethink everything in light of the news you're about to hear. So the good news that Jesus is preaching and inviting us into what he's actually doing, he's saying, listen to the kind of life I'm offering you and then rethink everything in light of that. And the good news is that it's not far away. It's not in a temple. The kingdom of God, heaven has come near to earth right here and right now. The line between the two is beginning to blur. That was revolutionary then, and it's revolutionary now. And, and to help us kind of, I, we have these ideas of heaven and earth so culturally ingrained within us. And I want to watch this video that's going to give us a good picture of how the Bible actually understands these realms of heaven and earth. So check these videos out. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but 
this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. And that's good news, isn't it? So Jesus is this place now where heaven and earth meet, and this has profound implications on what it means for us to be a disciple and and how to practice the life of Jesus. That's what this whole series for us is about. It's called Practicing Jesus, what that looks like. And, and, And because up to that time, when you wanted to meet with God and please God, you had to go to a temple, but then it tells us in the scriptures that after Jesus died, the moment he died, the veil in the temple was torn in two. So the place where the Holy of Holies was, where only one person could go, now the presence of God was no longer living inside a building, but now the presence of God was in us. We have 40 days after that, we have Pentecost, where at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes and it, it fills the early believers and, and, and fills them with that same spirit that was in the temple. Romans 8:11 says that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, lives in us. That same spirit, the presence of God from the temple now dwells in us. And then later in in 1 Corinthians 3.16, it tells us that don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you. And then again in 1 Corinthians 6.19, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. On top of that, because that's a lot to process, that now we are the temple, we are the bearers of God's presence. Jesus then gives us this promise in Matthew 28. He says, remember, I am with you always to the ends of the age. It's clear even in the name that Jesus was given in Isaiah when he's called Emmanuel, that the child that would come is called God with us. This is the God that that, that Jesus came to reveal to us, this ever-present, ever-faithful, everlasting God who does not come and go with the whims of our feelings or with our successes or our failures. So let's do the spiritual math because this is massive for how we understand our lives in Christ. If heaven and earth meet in Jesus, who's empowered in his life and his death and his resurrection by the Holy Spirit, 
then that means that that same spirit now is in us as living, breathing temples. And it's a a really new reality that comes to the surface for us. We are made to live the intersection of heaven and earth. In us, in us as followers of Jesus, heaven and earth as Christ in us meet. We are now the people of the presence. That's good news, isn't it? That's really good news. Aren't you glad that the Spirit of God does not live in this building or in the other church buildings around here? Isn't that good news? I hope it is. You see, Jesus lived with this massive calling on his life. And in that field, in that calling of the Spirit, He's asking us, do we believe that that same life is available to us? Because that's where I think the rubber meets the road. I don't know that we always believe that that same life that Jesus lived is available to us. I think we believe maybe we get the discount version of it. We get kind of the lower level kind of samples at Costco version of it. You know what I'm saying? But, but that life, the life in the spirit where we are the temple, that that life is available to you and to me, this brings about a massive paradigm shift for us. It means that we have to pay attention not just to, to what Jesus said, which is important, and not just to what Jesus did, which is also very important, but, but how Jesus did it. How did Jesus go about living his life? And if we see that that same spirit that's in Jesus dwells in us, this should create in us, I would imagine at least, a remarkably different kind of life, wouldn't it? And not in some we're holier than everybody else sort of a way, but something should be off by the way the rest of the world lives. So as you read through the Gospels, this becomes clear that that Jesus had this confidence in something that if we have confidence in, if we begin to believe, changes everything. And that's this, that God is always present and always at work around us. I'm going to say it again because it's huge. Jesus knew that God is always present and always at work around us around us. This is how he says it in John 5. He says, my father is still working and I am working also. Truly, I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. Do you see that? The strategy of Jesus's mission was simple. It wasn't to go and recreate the will. It was simply to look around and pay attention to where his father was already at work. Look at those passages there. It says what the father is doing, not what the father did or has done. He sees and is aware of God's imminent presence in the now and imminent working right all around him. And Jesus simply looked to see what his father was already at work doing. This stuff that we talked about with Pampering Pathways, what I love about it is that when we moved into the Lyric and moved into this neighborhood, what we began to do is just to start praying, 
God, we don't want to go out and reinvent the wheel. We want to go where you're going, where you are already at work. And so some of the folks around here just began praying, and and the door opened across the street at the Polk Dog Clinic by just one of our people saying, you know what, I'm going to walk across there and say, hey, we're a church, and we would love to figure out ways to serve you. And God opened that door massively, obviously. Not by us trying to start something, by simply stopping and recognizing that God was already at work here. God's work in this neighborhood did not begin when us saviors showed up. We're not the saviors. He's already working in and through our midst. And so that, that, that's a huge implication for our spiritual journey. If we understand that he is already here and he's already with us. The implications are massive. You see, I got to be honest, that's not my particular experience because I, I don't always have the confidence that he's at work. And when I don't have the confidence that he's here or he's at work, I get anxious and I start hurrying around as if everything depends on me. You ever done that in your life? You ever been anxious and, and, and just at a breakneck pace to try to figure out how you're going to get it done? Because it really, in your heart, you may believe in your head that it all depends on God, but in your heart, it really all depends on you. You know how that works out in church is that you think, man, if I didn't have a really good worship service, man, God didn't show up. You ever said that before? You ever go to church and then like the songs were not great or... The sermon was, you know, and then it's like, yeah, it was okay, but God, you know. But then the day that, like, the sermon's awesome or the music's amazing, like, God really showed up today. You know how dangerous that language is? Like, that's, is that what God's really like? Like, God just shows up when he likes how good the music is, or when you feel like, or we feel like he's, he's there? I don't see that in Jesus, I see Jesus having this massive calling, maybe the most biggest calling in all of human history, and yet Jesus wasn't anxious, and Jesus, he wasn't in a hurry. He did all of this in some sort of manner that just didn't look like what we associate with ministry in the Christian life. He just didn't seem like he was freaked out about anything. If I'm sent to save the world, I am a Oh, I'm a ball of just nerves. But you never see Jesus in a hurry. You never see Jesus living this anxiety-ridden, disconnected life where he just felt like something was on him that he couldn't handle. This is the way John Ortberg describes it. He says, if you want to follow someone, you can't go faster than the one who is leading. Following Jesus cannot be done at a sprint. Jesus was often busy, but he was never hurried. Being busy is an outer condition, but being hurried is a sickness of the soul. Man. <laughs> that is, that hits you, doesn't it? Wow. It hits me in my self-sufficiency. And it hits me in my pride where I want to live as if what God is doing in my life ultimately depends on me and how I feel. And so I have to drum up his activity in my world. See, most of my experience with the Christian life and with church, and I, I know this because I've had these conversations with, with many of you, is that we subconsciously live as if God lives here 
in an hour on Sunday, and then when we go back to our normal lives where we're doing laundry and having kids and relationships and stuff, those are the times where that's the sacred and secular boundary, where God is in these holy moments. Or he might be in that moment where you open up your Bible in the morning and read for 15 minutes and pray, but the rest of the time he's not really there. And so we put an unimaginable pressure on ourselves by relegating God to certain little moments of our lives where we think he's present based upon what we feel or based upon what we're doing and the rest of the time he's off doing something else. If that's what we believe about God, it's no wonder we're anxious. It's no wonder that we're hurried. It's no wonder that we're always running out of control because if I have to figure out how to work my life up for God, then I'm never going to be actually present here. I'm always going to be somewhere else. I'm always going to be running around thinking of the next thing I have to do for God instead of figuring out what my life might actually look like with God. You see this in Christian circles because we jump from worship service to worship service to experience to experience to conference to everything we can to just get that feeling again. You know what I'm talking about? To remember what it was like back then that one time God really moved in my life. And so we spend the rest of our spiritual lives trying to recreate something that happened then instead of knowing that he's just as present right now. If we're open to it, just as present. You see, if we're going to be a people of the presence, a people filled with the presence of God, we have to be a people who are present. We have to be here. I'm talking about being here, right here, right now. And to be present, we have to live as if God is already present with us and already at work. And if that's true, I can have a humble confidence that what God is doing does not depend on my success and my failure, and it does not depend on whether I feel him here or not. There's a reason why Jesus could live such a massive calling on his life and yet have this anxious, free, unhurried life. And it's because Jesus didn't live as if What he did earned God's love. Jesus did not live for love. He lived from a place of love. He lived from the reality that he was already love. His identity and his value was secure in the Father. At the beginning of his ministry, before anything happened, he goes and he gets baptized by by John the Baptist. And and the, the, the heavens open up. And this dove comes down and you hear the audible voice of God. This is what he says. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's a father saying to his son, I love you, I'm proud of you, I could not be more thrilled of you. Here's the thing, God said that before Jesus did anything at all. Before his ministry, before any healing, before any teaching, before the Sermon on the Mount, before the cross, before the resurrection, before the ascension, God the Father spoke his love over Jesus and said, I love you and I'm proud of you. That's why Jesus could live an unhurried, unanxious life, confident in the presence of God, because what the presence of God meant to Jesus was that this God who is here with me loves me now. Because when you truly know 
that you're loved, you can be present, can't you? You can slow down, can't you? You can leave the past behind. You can leave the future to God, and you can stop and just simply be present, knowing that you are loved. That's the same message that God wants to speak over you today, right where you're at. God wants to speak to you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. I'm not saying that to you as the future version of you where you get everything figured out, I'm saying that to you right now in the mess. You are my son, you are my daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm with you, I believe in you. That is inherent in the love that I have for you. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to live anxiously because I'm with you and I am for you. So in light of that, we want to do something different today. I was mentioning to someone before the service that we're going to spend some time just simply trying to be present today. And he says, I don't do that very well. We don't, do we? We don't do that very well. We move on to the next thing, or we're thinking about the last thing that's happening. Today, over the next few moments, as Hannah just plays this song, I just want to encourage you to hear those words of the Father to you. This is my son. This is my daughter. You are mine. I love you. I'm proud of you. You don't have to earn that. You have it right now. And in light of that, let's trust the miracle. That God, the God of the universe is here. That he's working in ways that you can't see or even know or imagine. He's working right now. So I want to listen to these, the words of this song. And I just want us to all just be still as we do this. We'll take communion here in a few minutes. But, but wherever you're at, let's just stop. Let's bow our heads. Let's be still. Let's be present to the love of God for us. Jesus, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you lived a life that is available to us today. In a bad news world where we are told that we belong based upon this or on that, we can say and declare today the good news that our identity and our value is secure in your love for us that we don't have to put on a label over here or over there, but today we can simply be still and know that we belong to you. So Jesus, in this time, help us to slow down and to be present in your love. We pray this in your name.